Shumai, hello, welcome back to the podcast. You can become a patron of this podcast and you can do that by going to the website charliecharlie1.com and hit become a patron, a red button on, uh, it's on most pages I think of the site or you can go to patreon.com forward slash hkpodcasts and do it there. And you can get also get uh, merch, HR podcast merchandise at shop.charliecharlie1.com and on the shop there you can also get combat cigars at the moment. Uh, so yeah, shop.charliecharlie1.com. Uh, a shout to the sponsors of the podcast today, Veteran Trees. Veteran Trees is a veteran-owned and operated new startup. Started March last year, March 2020, uh, operating before that as a hobby, uh, producing bespoke, um, handcrafted and CNC-crafted wooden pieces, wooden gifts. The wood comes from the trees that Dan climbs and dismantles, and he's reusing that wood into the commissions he produces. Bespoke, customizable, handle machine-crafted, uh, he is forever pushing the limits to produce unique pieces. Stuff for leaving gifts, for promotions, for the bar, for the mess, the club, the house wall, uh, or the office, or anywhere you want, really, for the home even. Dan can deliver. The list of products made are ever-expanding, but the main sellers are unique military plaques that he produces for leaving gifts or for families remembering other members in their family service. He also produces passing out gifts, pass, pass out parades. The largest commission he's done to date has actually been an eight foot by four foot conference table mail, uh, mailed, made for a company in Kent. The entire top of the conference, the entire tabletop was crafted to the design that the company wanted. It was pretty impressive. Dan at Veteran Trees, he's open to all units, all businesses, and all homes. He's currently uh, made pieces in the military for. 40 and 4-2 commando. He's made pieces for the SPS, for Power Reg Battalions, and many of the units in the Army. Also for RAF units and RAF Reg, Submariners, and to a couple of other different naval units. His portfolio is huge. The best place to get eyes on it is on Instagram. He's on Instagram as at veteran underscore trees. It is cool. So honestly, you have to like, you have to kind of see it to believe it. The level of detail into what he produces is amazing. Um, I've actually got uh, four. He, he made some placemats. He doesn't just do tables and plaques. He does placemats and stuff like that. I've got four in the studio. I've got four wooden placemats, really high quality, that my girlfriend got made for as a gift when I did um, when I reached 100 episodes. And uh, they've got branded into the top of the each coaster each placemat is the hour logo and on the back of one of them is a bottle opener too so uh it's good kit go on to his instagram at veteran underscore trees to check it out um and if you want to get in touch with him directly for any commissions any ideas any quotes any um any feedback you want uh to get from him with any ideas you got you can email him veteran trees at outlook.com veteran trees outlook.com thank you for dan and Veteran Trees are sponsoring the podcast. Keep producing amazing work. And uh, thanks for the coasters. Also sponsoring the podcast today are the Aardvark Group. The Aardvark Group uh, have been supporters of the military community for decades. They employ a huge proportion of uh, ex-military in their ranks. And, um, and I'll explain why. They were founded in 1982. And they were founded with the express objective of developing a mechanical landmine clearing system. Which would meet the design criteria which its founders considered to be the primary critical factors, namely for the clearance of all known anti-tank and anti-personnel mines and the location, identification and disposal of all munitions and unexploded ordnance lying about in 
mostly post-conflict areas waiting to mess some poor souls day up. In the process of developing a design criteria for this landmine clearance equipment, it rapidly became evident to Aardvark that there were two distinct and mutually exclusive applications for their kit, for, the, for their, their technical innovations. One was for minefield breaching under combat conditions, and one was for post-conflict and humanitarian area clearance. The consequence of their design philosophy has been to produce the most effective specialised vehicle for the destruction and detonation and or detonation of landmines, while permitting the flail system to be adapted for attachment to a minefield breaching machine. The task to clear the world of landmines is enormous. It's not just to do with the number of mines that are lying about. Some estimates go up to 110 million unexploded mines. It's not just the number of mines, though. It's the area contaminated. A small country like Croatia, which has been well mapped of uh, unexploded ordnance and landmines, it's got an area of 4,000 square kilometres contaminated by minefields and randomly scattered mines. That's 4 billion square metres. It's a huge undertaking, an aardvark are at the tip, of the, the tip of the spear in undertaking this. For the last five decades, they've been doing it, and they're developing other technical innovations on top of the flail chain system as well. They now use drone technology and other technologies to improve the way they do things, make it more efficient, and make it more commercially viable as well. You can find out more about the Aardvark Group at aardvark.group or on social media. They're on Twitter, LinkedIn, Facebook and Instagram. Just search for the Aardvark Group. Follow them on there. And you can you can actually get a good feel for how much they've been involved in saving lives, protecting lives and protecting assets in the last four or five decades through uh, yeah through their social media. It's really interesting stuff. Aardvark Group on social media or aardvark.group website. Thank you, David and John Clare and everybody at the Aardvark Group. Also sponsoring the podcast today are Rugby for Heroes. Rugby for Heroes are a not-for-profit organisation formed in 2009 and they were formed in the wake of the death of Private Joe Whitaker who served with the Parachute Regiment in 2008 and was sadly killed in Afghanistan in the same year. Since forming, Rugby for Heroes have raised over £110,000 for military charities. They initially formed with the intent of doing a rugby festival every year in May at Old Lemontonians RFC in Warwickshire and that rugby festival would uh, would be a three-day event and that was going that has been going every year since the only year it didn't happen was 2020 because of the COVID situation nonetheless in the last couple of years they've been picking up the number of events they're doing to in- increase their fundraising capability and in doing so they have uh, added in things like supper clubs and beer and gin festivals and even now in 2021, we've still got the, the COVID situation going on. They are currently working on other fundraising ideas for the next few months. So you need to keep an eye on them um, by going to rugbyforheroes.org, rugbyforheroes.org, or following them on social media at rugby4heroes. They're also heavily involved and in behind the uh, formation of the Forces Barbarians RFC, which is uh, the Rugby Club for Ex-Military Veterans. And uh, that has been going from strength to strength since since of its formation in May. R4H are a huge part of the military community. I have benefited from them directly. Uh, I am, uh, and I'm very glad I was able to because it got me out of a really, really, really bad spot. And I've been heavily involved with them ever since. Very proud to be associated with the organisation. I'm very, very glad that they've chosen to sponsor the podcast. Thank you to Rugby Heroes. On social media, it's at Rugby Number 4 Heroes, Rugby for Heroes, and their website is rugbyforheroes.org. Thank you, Mike Valance and everybody at Rugby Heroes. Keep doing the do.
onto the podcast. My guest today is Andrew Marr. Andrew Marr is a retired Special Forces United States, Special Forces Green Beret, and he is now the founder and chairman of the Warrior Angels Foundation, uh, an organization that he established uh, with the aim of helping anyone suffering from a traumatic brain injury uh, to get the right treatment and to really get on with their lives, not just ex-military people, but anyone who might impact, including uh, athletes, laborers, frontline services, literally anyone. My guest today is Andrew Ma. My name is Hugh Keir, and this is the H-Hour podcast. Enjoy. Congratulations on uh, Quiet Explosions. I watched it about two weeks ago, three weeks ago. It's available over here in the UK on Vimeo. You can't get it on Amazon. It's on, on Amazon Prime. It's on Vimeo over here. Amazing. Hit the nail on the head uh, with everything that um, you, the Angel Warrior Foundation, um, and your brother, and obviously, uh, and obviously Mark Gordon are advocating. Um, mm-hmm. And we'll come on to that, mate. But we're... Where does your journey start, dude? How the hell, where does the start of the journey of the Angel Warrior, produced the Angel Warrior Foundation? What's your story? Yeah, it's, um, it's the, the Warrior Angel Foundation, and that name came out from uh, my mom. All my brothers uh, were uh, in the Army, you know, in combat uh, times, so we were all deployed, you know, uh, together and, you know, through a long, long, large span of time and so my mom she would always pray for warrior angels to kind of be uh, protecting us or, or overhead or, or close by and uh, I'm not religious per se but um, it was very you know comforting for her to think of that and it came brought to, to myself um, and it was you know it, a warrior angel is a brave and experienced fighter of exemplary virtue and that's what I wanted to be the organization I wanted to be to kind of be centered around and stand from. But it came back. I mean, I, I got to the Army in 2006. I finished my degree. I was a college athlete. And I wanted to go to combat, like straight up. I wanted to trust myself in combat. I knew there was a war going on. And I thought I should, I should be in it. Um, good, bad, or different. That's where I wanted to be. And I uh, looked at the special operations venues, and I figured uh, in, in the U.S., the Green Berets was the, the best fit for me, uh, kind of being um, a little bit more mature uh, mentally and, and having some life experience under me, and I uh, wanted to go right in, go through the training and get down, and, and that's what segue, you know, into my military career. So I went in, uh, there's a special program called the uh, 18 X-ray program, which takes, you know, new recruits off the street and you go right to the training pipeline. So I spent about two years um, training, going through all the special forces uh, qualification course and then right into becoming operational, which was in 2009. And um, I was with my team for less than three months. And then we were in Helmand, Afghanistan, um, you know, shortly after my, my arrival to the team. And then from 2009 to 2013, every calendar year, you know, I was combat deployed. And, uh, and, you know, as you know, Hugh, like part of our, you know, there's a lot of skill sets and a lot of responsibilities. One of the lead responsibilities that I took on or I was um, had the privilege to take on with my team was 
um, lead breacher. So, you know, it was just around a lot of explosions. So before, or, you know, we'll, we'll go down that rabbit hole. But, you know, my, my background of being a college athlete, American football, all the way to college, and then choosing the profession of a special operator, just that lifestyle alone, and then putting us in and around, you know, multiple uh, low blast scenarios, chronic exposure to, to blast waves, you know, and if, anybody, if you're going to be proficient in something, whatever it is, chess, shooting free throws, you know, becoming an accountant, you have to practice. For us, the, for, as an operator, we got to practice over and over and over again in real time before you ever step foot in a real life and death situation. No different. And so, you know, we have to practice with live charges, live rounds, hundreds, thousands of times. And, and we now know that, that that can have a, you know, deleterious effects on the brain, its cognition, its ability to perform, and our ability to do life. But that's kind of how I went from college, you know, into the Army. Um, and, and got that arena. Oh, have you got military in your family? I know your brother. Your brother was a pilot, right? Um, but where did where did the urge come from? Because for myself, I mean, I don't have. It's hard to understand sometimes when there's no military. I don't have any military in the family. So, what was the score with you? Was it was it there already? Yeah. That's a good question. No, no, there was no military ties in my family. Well, uh, I guess I take. I got back my mom's father fought in the Korean War, and uh, I didn't. I've never met him. He died when my mom was seven, um, and so I didn't have any direct connection or direct ties with anybody. I didn't have any adult or male figures in my life that were had had time or anything else. My parents were just super patriotic in the sense that um, from being very young, my mom would tell me that freedom isn't. And, and growing, growing up in America, she has very, my mom and dad both, but my, my mom specifically was always like, listen, the reason that we're able to go and do and live life the way we want to live is because good men fought, bled, and died to give us the right to be able to do that. And, um, you know, I just, that's how I came up, man. That was just ingrained uh, in my thinking. So again, like the war kicked off, you know, as you well know, uh, shortly after 2001, Iraq in 2003, and uh, I was in college at the time, and I was pursuing the things that I wanted to pursue, but when that was over, it just, like, you know, what, what am I going to do next with my life? It was, I didn't even have to think about it, man. Like, I want to go over here. I want to put myself to the ultimate test. Combat is the ultimate test. Um, I believed in, in what we were doing at the time and wanted to be a part of it. Uh, so, you know, no, no family background. That's just where that kind of drive came from, I think. How do you find it? We've got a similar thing to what, what you described as X, X13. Is that what you called it when you join up? Go straight, yeah, right, it's uh, yeah, yeah. So X-ray is the designator. Oh, I, I apologize. 18 next one. Yeah, so we got a thing over here called LDET. Um, I think it's still called that, where you can join up and go straight to special forces. Is my understanding with it. Um, and uh, how did you? I mean, how did you find that going into an, a special forces unit? Was everyone uh, was everyone in the same designation, or were there people there who had been, you know, normal enlisted in, in the normal army and then chose to join SF? What was that like as an experience? Uh 
you know, it, wild. Um, so I didn't, I, I, <laughs> well, the easiest way to say it, I, uh, so I joined and I wanted that contract. Um, they wouldn't give it to me. Uh, I had a, some injuries and, you know, for whatever reason, the army and its infinite wisdom says, well, you, you can't have that contract, but you can go and join the infantry. And I was like, fuck it, fine. That's, you know, where I want to be. I'll, I'll get over there anyway. Um, and so I went to basic training, our basic training, and then, um, kind of hands-on technical part of becoming an infantryman after that. So I think that's what is like a 16-week process. Anyways, in there, I performed well, um, and they said, hey, you, we'll give you a contract to go right into to SF training uh, if you want it. And I was like, yeah, 100%. I want it. So I finished up my 16-week, you know, basic training. And it wasn't. it's not a knock on anybody in the infantry or, or anything like that, but the individuals that I was with in uh, that I was – paired up with in basic training, it just became apparent to me, like, I'm more mature. I'm like, you know, I'm in my, like, I'm like 24 at the time. And, you know, you're in there with 18-year-old kids. There's just going to be a different level of mentality, you know, the way you see the world and the way you accomplish things. And I was just, I don't think I want to hang out uh, in this arena um, if I don't have to. And so that also became motivation for me to, to kind of hopefully get to the next level, hoping that would be a, a you know maybe a more a higher skill level and a higher degree of maturity and, and professionalism as it went about things. So I got into the got into the program, went in straight into airborne school, and then after that you go to Fort Bragg, which is where we do all of our um, training. And it was pretty cool, Hugh, because they had a special course uh, preparation course that prepared the the 18 X-rays to go into our assessment and selection course. So I got a four, I was like, I think it was four weeks at the time. And, and that specifically was just for 18 x-rays. Now there's, I'll tell you the ones that are successful and the ones that aren't. The ones that weren't successful as x-rays, uh, they didn't, they didn't make the cut to get into SF or they actually fell through the cracks. They got in and they didn't do well and they, they, uh, burnt out if they got to a team or the guys that were very young and had no life experience. On the flip side, if you had older guys who were educated or had like actually gone out and learned a, tr learned a trade and had applied themselves and had done life, well then they brought a whole different you know, skill set that was different than the conventional army would have had in addition to their now special operations training. And, and that became a very, very um, a big asset for the team. So, but that being said, there we are, we're, you know, special forces, uh, I mean, the 18 x-ray group, we're at the special forces preparatory course, which is four weeks of just straight up uh, PT and land nav. And what was great about that is it gave us the opportunity, where we, where we do assessment and selection at, and that, that camp in North Carolina is where we trained at for that preparatory course. So we literally got to train where we were going, we got to practice where we were going to play at assessment and selection. So when we got to special forces assessment and selection, we call it SFAS, it wasn't like I was trying to understand what the terrain was like, what the you know weather conditions were like, anything like that. We knew it like the back of our hand. So it gave us an unfair advantage, 100%. And you know, the those are a highly motivated group of individuals. So that was like its own type of population right there. 
go into SFAS, and that's everybody from the Army, um, uh, which is normally, or I wouldn't say normally, conventionally how Special Forces is pulled from its pool. They would pull from all of the Army, and you had to be at least a uh, E5 uh, sergeant, rank of sergeant. So you wanted, they wanted somebody who had some experience in the military before they came over and did that. And so, yeah, they pull from everybody uh, in there. So you have a wide variety of people. You know, I would say probably half, not more, from the infantry. Uh, next 25% is probably the engineers. And then a wide variety of that other, I'd say, 20, 20%. And then the last 5% were the, uh, the x-rays. And, and that's probably changed um, as of today. But when I went through in 2007, that was probably the, the makeup of it. Yeah, it's interesting to hear it. Um, on, on that side from that civilian straight into the SF world just obviously you've got someone similar here but also on that um, the comparison between having prior knowledge before getting into SF or not there was a period of time over here when I was serving that Hereford so 2-2 SAS guys there was a period of time I remember it when it went from a change to them looking for more experienced more senior guys to attempt selection it went to switch into they wanted the younger guys and the reason being is that younger guys have got less experience they're easier to mold and they were finding that the mm -hmm. older guys are harder to snap out of habits out of the conventional habits and switching certain drills and skills into the the needs of the special forces world and the you know counter-terrorism and everything else that goes with what you kind of guys do you know um Mate, can we? Uh, are you are you able to talk about um, your first Afghan tour in Helmand, or not? Mm -hmm. Not, I mean, I mean, yeah. not specifics, because I, you, we're of a similar age. I didn't realise. Um, I I got it, but we got it at different times. So I got in was eighteen, and in 06 when you joined up, I was in then Helmand for my first time. So when did you go to Helmand? Two thousand seven. Uh, I was in in two thousand nine. Uh, oh. Uh, Winter up to summer of 2010. Yeah. Got yeah. Where whereabouts were you operating? What were you doing? Yeah, we were we were at um, Firebase Robinson, um, right Sorry, off of if I remember right. Yeah, yeah, absolutely. About uh, one one k, maybe maybe even less uh, south of. <laughs> Sam getting off of that. I think it was Highway One. I, I could be wrong. Uh, man, it was it was kind of it was a shitty mission because uh, you're out there in the middle of nowhere at the fire base, basically. And I never understood it, but the our our, our sole objective there was basically to hold the white space that had been fought so hard <laughs> to have there at Firebase Robinson. So if anybody, I don't know if you're if you live, I'm sure you have backgrounds there. Like half of your time. Or maybe even 60% of your time on a firebase is just purely uh, given to sustaining life in a security position or a perimeter type of thing. Like that, that, that's it because there's no, no, we, shit go, hits the fan, nobody's gone. Um, food just has to get airdropped in, everything like that. So we held the white space. I think we had something like 37 direct fire attacks on the base uh, while we were there. And um, we would just go out and do presence patrols and movement to contact. And I got really good at 
identifying and blowing IEDs in place, man, because <laughs> the fucking place was riddled with IEDs, and, and that that was pretty much encapsulated that that trip. So that so I, I forget what was happening in what year, but so that would tie in then when the USMC went in and took over the British in Sangin. Was that was that the reason you guys that that year was that when that happened? I remember that. Yeah, that was because uh, I, I remember Hughes. Oh, it was, the big was operation was a. Go on, sorry. Go on. Oh no, no, no. Yeah, I, I remember. Uh, I I remember hearing about how you, you guys when you guys were in there, and um, and just getting smashed by IEDs for some reason. I I don't know why. I think you 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 guys put a lot more troops in there for some re that we had, obviously for obvious reasons to achieve the mission, and for some we're well, not for some reason for for again obvious reasons. The Taliban just switched entirely to just going. IED set everything was IED was very it's yeah. what I was hearing on the net anyway and very few small arms attacks and uh, I remember thinking I do not envy those guys in Sangin right now you know uh, it was just a crazy time crazy time yeah, yeah. no man that's that's a, that's a hundred percent accurate the the tactic the tactic had shifted um, and it was heavily to the uh, pressure plate IED and they were even putting them in you know, rice fields and just wild shit, man. Like, um, cause it was hard to, it was a great strategy if you don't care about life or, you know, destroying the local populace or anything like that. Yeah. Just throw them in random places and, uh, off roads and dudes will hit them and it'll, you know, blow off extremities from that viewpoint. It was a brilliant strategy. Um, but yeah, you're right, man. I think we took over the soda South, uh, my battalion, um, yeah, yeah, we took over the soda, and then Marja was a big operation um, where we uh, we re-entered a big, huge clearing operation, and uh, Marja took place uh, that trip as well. Mm. Well, when you so when you uh, when you was there any different when you came back from there? Question for you: You deployed as an older guy uh, compared? No, not an older guy. You deployed as someone who had joined up at an older age. You know, so we, you and I, are probably both going through going through the same experiences. As if I'd have joined six years younger. What? How did you see any difference in the way you were absorbing experiences of of of, uh, of combat compared to people who had sort of had a bit more time to be uh, conditioned towards it? Does that make sense or not? How How do you think my re, my response was an experience with it compared to somebody? who had been more conditioned to it or uh, who wasn't who prepared had, to, who had, to experience it? Who had, who had had, who had had life, who had, compared to someone who had less life experience as an adult, you were adult, you were adulting mm -hmm. until you were 24 mm -hmm. years old in, mm -hmm. in the real world. Yeah. Between that Got period it. of 18 to 24 years old, you, you know, you were doing a lot of growing up, right? And you get a lot yeah, more understanding sure. of the world and you got a lot better handle on what's going on, especially in the Middle East and, 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 uh, and that bigger picture piece as a, from a civilian yeah. perspective compared to someone who's joined 18 and then all they've ever experienced of it and their perception of it is completely military orientated. I think, yeah, I think there is a difference for sure. Um, you know, like you said, there's that geopolitical understanding. Um, but at the same time, do I think somebody that was 18 or 21 couldn't get into a difficult situation and mentally be able to cope with it? 
Um, I think it just depends on the individual's you know mindset, their frame of mind, and their resiliency. So I think there's probably uh, you know, there's probably a sector of the population that would have no issues with that. Some, if you were less mature or you hadn't made your mind up ahead of time before going into combat, like nobody knows what the fuck combat is until you're in combat, right? But you have some ideas. <laughs> I mean, you have some notions. You know what's at stake. And if you haven't already committed to the game uh, prior to stepping in the arena, understanding like, hey, man, if I'm not switched on, um, things can go south. For me, for everybody, um, and you're not prepared to deal with that, or you even ha you haven't worked through that thought process ahead of time, then I think you're going to be set up for failure uh, when things go south, or they or they get tough, or they get rough. Um, but that, on the flip side, you know, I think also what's important is training, training yourself to be in those situations. It might be more difficult, and I'm making some assumptions here. It might be more difficult for an 18 or a 20 year old to really understand the importance of behavior and patterns and how coming with a sense of excellence at every time with everything you do is of the utmost importance because that's going to translate into the real world scenario. So that may or may not be there, but that can be mitigated with proper leadership, proper, proper NCOs and, and things like that, man. So. You know, there's a difference, but I think it can be mitigated, and, and I do think that just because somebody's younger doesn't mean they can't be a stellar performer and they can't have a higher level of understanding. I do think that's the case, although it's probably more rare than it is constant. Yeah, I think I think what I what I what I I think I was trying to get at was the the af the experience of the after effects of, of experience of the combat in terms so let me try and i'm sorry i'm trying to this is the first time i've ever thought about it this way so i'm trying i'm just trying to word it properly so yeah. a person who joins at 18 right or even experiences anything let's just the military maybe they didn't don't even go on operations right but they're in for a time right they've they've never experienced a baseline in normal inverted commas life in in civilian civilian world in civilian street a baseline level of uh mental capacity mental acuity um uh, just mental state right so and i'm talking sort of myself as well i joined at 18 what my my experience of you know how the brain should should be expected to operate and function is is pretty much if you think that okay the human brain doesn't stop like developing until like 23 24 years old well that was right. my helmet time that was my iraq war time um and and so there's no baseline to compare it with whereas people who join when they're older they've always boggled my mind they've i think i i think man there's something must be really wrong with civil the civilian world <laughs> for you to join up at 23 24 years 25 years old or even sometimes later like to get to want to get into this and have an experience of sort of normality and then when they experience Im immense uh immensely stressful situations like you did there must be a have been a baseline shift in the way your mind is working you had a you were able to have an adult uh, a mature perception on how you were beforehand a conscious awareness of it much better than a 17 18 year old 16 year old uh, and so you were much aware, much more aware of any shifts, any changes that might might have occurred um, after a tour, after experiences. And is that one? Is that the case? And two, is that is was that a positive thing or a negative thing to uh, to then 
impact you dealing with, what you dealt with go, going forward after your tours and where the Angel Warrior Foundation came from? There's a question there somewhere. I, 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 I hit a yeah. question. There. <laughs> <laughs> oh, you see. Well, I, before I jump in, what's, what's your take on it? What's your feel on, on it? Um, what's the difference um, between the two as you see it? Because you, you, you did the flip end of the spectrum. You went at 18. So how did that affect you? Being there at 23, 24, yeah. would you say? I think, I think maybe, uh, I think maybe there it's tougher again. And as like you said, this is down to individuals, right? And this is a whole. We're re I'm really generalising here, but I think maybe it's tougher for someone who joins up as a kid to try and get a handle on what their adult brain sh sh is is doing, which is not quite right, you know. Um, um, particularly when we're talking, Andrew, about. Um, the uh, stress, anxiety, uh, the symptoms of depression, uh, erratic behavior, all of that stuff. Because quite often, especially in the military, all that gets mingled in with just life and, oh, the army's crazy and those guys are mental and oh, he, he's just enjoying himself after a tour. And, you know, I think maybe it's more, yeah. it's harder to get a grip on it. And so, and so younger, people who are younger, lads or ladies, men or women, maybe spot the issues a bit later i might be talking shit i've literally just thought i'm just thinking this through now you know i don't know it's interesting to hear your perspective yeah i think uh well here's what i noticed man like um you could tell a distinct difference uh of cats who got in at 18 right and you know they had they maybe they had six eight years regular army experience and then they, they came into to sf like great dudes some of, my, some of my very good friends still, but like there is a difference <laughs> in their, how they reacted with the world. Like there was no filter, you know what I mean? Like they thought everybody <laughs> talked in the most vile and foul language and like it didn't matter if you were in public, outside of church and like come over to my parents' home. Like that's just how we talk to people. And they didn't have a concept of like, no, no, like this is very, this is unusual. People do not interact this way. People do not, you know, call their best friend fucker, you know, and they don't just get belligerent drunk anytime they're not at work. Like these things, <laughs> these things aren't there. And so, um, and not saying that's the case with everybody, but, 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 but to that point, like, yeah, I could see a difference in a guy who came in at 18 and kind of got, I don't know if, if indoctrinated is the right word, but he didn't have a, like he developed in the army in this microcosm where he thought that that was reality or had the potential for that and i could see that play out later and how those individuals like reacted or, or interacted with the world and i was like oh he thinks everybody's like this they're not <laughs> we're, we're really different yeah it took me a long time to get out of that it takes it takes and some people never get out of it you're right uh, and and <laughs> it is uh, it is fun. Even you know, I when I left, I I left at thirty. I was thirty years old, and then I went and worked in the Middle East doing private security. And then I, I sort of I came into my first like civilian job. I landed a really good job, corporate level um, role in not a small company. And uh, my God, the challenge, the challenge of 
it's in social environment in social uh, situations mostly because in like a corporate meeting situation it's not a drama it's like speaking to your boss it's like speaking to the the major the commanding officer whatever you mind your p's and q's you're able to speak you know eloquently and adequately well not, maybe not eloquently but but then in the social yeah. situations where you're letting your hair down and you're engaging with people man and that's when all the effort and blinding comes out the inappropriate the, like the, the that those sort of those aggressive those perceived aggressive ways in which we talk we're just super and i am we generally like military people are just super aggressive when we talk to each other that's how that's how we interact but you don't realize it until you're out really difficult it's really difficult but we're <laughs> fucking digressing here jesus christ um well when did you start yeah, there's when there's you... also a lot also man um is the uh i think that's maybe special to our population is the like extreme dark humor and i found that that's that doesn't translate well to other sectors of society and we seem to be just like find great comfort and um absurdity you know and all the dark dark humor and, and jokes about just nasty stuff and, and death and i think that's also something that's unique to our population or you know people who have been through the trials of of real combat yeah, I think, uh, yeah, over here it carries over into what we call the blue light services over here, your ambulance, you know, your ambulance service, your police service, mm -hmm. and your fire service, uh, but not to the same degree, but certainly there, and certainly in the ambulance service, you know, where they deal with death a lot, all the time, mm -hmm. you know, and you've got to find, you've got to find a way through it, um, somehow to deal with it, but no, you're right, but wait, when did you, when did your, um, when did things start going pear-shaped for you? Was it when you were in or when you left? My last combat deployment was in 2013 to uh, Wardak out in the east. And it was the most intense, um, intense trip of, 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 all my, uh, of all my trip. And so it was just a, um, well, we were there in Wardak, and we had a great, we were there at uh, FOB Airborne, uh, which was great. So we had this big installation there, and for the first time, we could just focus all our energy out on the battlefield and going out and doing business because everything else was secure. We had a, you know, it was a huge infantry camp. We had this awesome compound that really completely tripped out and built up uh, on the compound. So, you know, everything with the just niceties, I mean, uh, having showers, running waters, great food, great gym, uh, didn't have to pull security at night. We could just focus on affecting the battle space that we were in. The mission, uh, well, before we, um, there had been a lot of shit that went down in that area, you know, the year prior to us. Uh, coming and uh, so they actually had to pull a couple of ODAs out of the um, kind of fire bases that they were at so it left this vacuum and the, they had to pull back to airborne so the the team that we replaced there was kind of just it was winter and they were just focused energy on, on training the police that was right next door to the compound so we get there it's um, early March and starting to look out within the community. And I mean, the thing had just become, it was Maiden Shar province, had just become riddled with um, Taliban. And they were, they were the law, openly carrying weapons all throughout, like we had, you know, 
a lot of um, visibility on it. And I was just shocked because this is like not even a kick, a, a K from our site. And they're completely wreaking havoc here. We're taking incoming every day. So all we did for the next six months is just clear motherfuckers out day and night. Um, and that was the battle, man. It was a battle for Maiden Shar over the next six months. And this is what happens when, um, at least, you know, it's supposed to be a counterinsurgency, which is, you know, what uh, clear, hold, and build. Well, we, we seem to be clearing for the last 20 years. We do some building, but we don't hold shit. Uh, it's infuriating. It doesn't seem like there's any strategy uh, behind any of this. Uh, maybe it's a conversation for uh, why, a different time. Why do, you think, why do you think that is? Why do you think that is? I think that because uh, war is profitable, man. <laughs> Yeah, yeah. This is another podcast. We ain't we ain't got this bun, bun. Let's rub it all. We do that again. But yeah. Okay. I'm inclined to agree. I'm inclined to agree. However, however, um, we will we will get back on track in a minute. However, I had a I had a Serbian lady on recently. She's a friend of mine. She's a civilian. She was a redevelop. She in provincial uh, in did you know working for DAI. You know uh, the the uh, redevelopment mm -hmm. company, the American company. Uh, she, anyway, she got smashed up in Kunduz, you know, nearly killed. And um, and uh, we we talked about that. And she she sees a way forward with it in a military way in terms of redevelopment in, in Afghanistan. But uh, that is a different 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 topic of conversation. Carry on talking. Right. See, been clearing for twenty years. That's where you're at. Clearing for twenty years. There's no there's no holding going on. Well, yeah. Yeah. <laughs> Uh, that was the deal, man. So, you know, it was, uh, I, I, I know the game. I knew the game, you know, and I opted to play in it. I also enjoyed going out and shooting and killing shitbags. So that was just where I was at. I know I wasn't, you know, we're going to, we weren't affecting some big strategy or, you know, doing anything else. But I was on that playing field there. There's people, the Taliban, they're bad people, like straight up, whether we should be there or not be there terrorizing the town, shooting girls in the head, not allowed to go to school, kidnapping children, raping boys, just disgusting, disgusting stuff. So we can argue all the stuff, we should be there or not be there. We made a positive, positive impact in the, in the, you know, in the local populace uh, that we were there, there, you know, really affecting. And, and so that was, that was the gist of it, man. It was just, you know, can we can we root out this um, Taliban stronghold? And we did. Uh, what happened after we left, you know, I don't know. I got out of it. But the point being, man, is just, you know, and, and now we have a culmination of my entire collegiate um, career. Now a special forces, you know, career where, again, I'm in and around explosives, explosives on a routine basis. I was never, I, I was only knocked unconscious once in my entire life, my entire career. And it was on that trip, um, we were next to a house that was rigged to blow. We had to get out and then we were caught between a rock and a hard place. Uh, I had incoming uh, fire pinning us down. I realized the RPGs that were coming in was set to trigger the house to blow. So I was like, okay, shit, man, um, we're pinned down. We have an open area, a river, and we're next to um, this uh, mosque that's 50 meters from the house that's rigged with explosives to, to take it down. So it was like, okay, we can't move. Um, if we control deck this house, it's most likely going to knock us all out. Um, and those are our options.
options or, or wait it out and allow them to maneuver on us. So the only options I saw was we had to, we had to take our, our chances, uh, command debt, debt house, and then pick ourselves up and attempt to fight back to our, um, to our stronghold, which is what we did. And uh, it turns out it was like 12, 107 rounds um, that we were 50 meters away from. And um, it just, uh, it, I don't know if it knocked everybody out, but I'll be surprised that if, that if it didn't. And I came to, and I had, I just, I had no clue. I didn't, I didn't have any idea of a, of a self or what was going on. I did remember like, okay, it was just daytime and, and now it's, it's, it's dark. And then I was like, okay, maybe, okay, I'm, I'm in a building and there's just been an earthquake. So I'm, I'm reaching up and I'm feeling around. I'm like, okay, so I'm not in a building. And then, you know, 762 RPGs flying by. And I was like, okay, I, I know what's going on. And at that point, muscle memory snaps back into place and you just go and you do the deal. Um, we didn't lose, we didn't take any casualties. We didn't lose any life on that operation. We were able to gather everybody up and fight back to our, 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 our uh, overwatch position and live to play another day um, on that one. But that was the only time that I was ever knocked out. And it was brief, like maybe three, maybe five, I don't know, three or five seconds. So the point I'm making is like, there wasn't any like drastic like time in my entire career that I had an injury uh, or I was injury prone or, or anything like that, or had a massive open head wound or just repetitive concussions where I was knocked out. Just didn't happen. Zero issues as I knew it. Um, that was about midway through the deployment. Um, and we just kept on, on rock until it was over. So fast forward, I come home, um, and then about three months after my return from home, start having new problems that I've never been there before. Like, um, problems with sleep, problems with my energy, problems with libido, very attractive wife. Um, you know, I've been awake for a long time and all of a sudden, I, you know, I think I'm 33 at the time. And I can't perform, you know, physically. And she's like, hey, man, like, uh, her two, her scenario was either you have somebody else or you don't love me anymore. And I'm like, Jesus Christ, man, I just had to deal with all this nonsense. And now I got to come home and hear, and hear this shit because it couldn't have been further from the truth. And I'm like, listen, I don't know what the deal is. It's not working right now. Um, and I just figured, you know, Hugh, it was like, hey, we had a, we were pushed hard, hard, hard. The whole time, I was like, I think my body's going to take some time to come back online. You know, that's just how I rationalized it. It never came back online. It, it just continued to God trying to get worse, man. And I started to have uh, panic attacks. And I, I didn't even know what a panic attack was. I just thought that was some weak, weak person's problem, right? That can't touch me. So there I am. At the, I'm at the gym and doing my thing. And all of a sudden, I just, like, get hit, like, uh, like with a tornado, I, like I, you can, I have physical energy force that like, hits me, and I feel I'm losing my balance, and so I'm kind of waving, and and things start spinning, and I start hyperventilating, and I'm like, Jesus Christ, what's going on? So I'm just trying to like brace myself and get control, and I realize like I I don't have any control of whatever this physiological process is. It's just kind of like a runaway gunman. It's just running, and I'm just I sit there as the witness to it, but I can't do anything about it. And then, like, so I'm hyperventilating, I'm losing my breath, and I start to become like overly emotional, and I have no control over it. And, I would, and, and it produced a fist that felt felt like it was actually coming up and out of my stomach and turning, and then turning to several. 
And that didn't go away for about 18 months, man. That, that, that constant, significant fist in the stomach. And start to, start to talk about thinking that you're losing your mind. Because I, was there just a, like a demon that just injured me? Like, did I just get possessed? Like, what happened? So the only thing I could think to do, man, in that situation, of course I wasn't going to talk about it, was to go and, and start drinking. And that was the only thing in my mind that I knew. Like, all right, like, I, I don't know what else to do, but I can't continue on in this state. And that's when I really started to, to pick up my drinking. So, so I went, you know, from this high-level performer and these situations of life and death Starting having these subtle little problems, you know, no big deal. I'll cope with it. I can't sleep. I mean, I never slept that much anyway, you know. But the energy—that was a big thing. I'm a high energy dude, uh, libido. I'm a high libido dude. That was very odd. And then starting to get hit with anxiety, and then very quickly um, became this level of depression started to, to sink in. That then became like incredibly overwhelming and it seemed like there was an internal battle between good and dark forces where normally my self-talk is very positive, very optimistic and upbringing and it was like this devil on the shoulder type of thing which I also didn't seem to have any control of just kind of hunkered in and I was having this fight between good and evil in my head and I just couldn't figure out like what the fuck and, and I, I'm, doing, I'm doing the work I want to do, like I don't want to do anything. I, I, I want to ride this till I can't ride it anymore. I, I'm with the woman I love, the woman I want to be with. We have a family, the family we always wanted. So the point I'm making is I have zero issues about anything I had done in combat. Zero. And I'm like, well, how can I be depressed? Like that, does, that doesn't add up. Somebody needs to be able to tell me what's going on. And I continued to sit on it so long until I, my drinking was so out of control that I was... Um, drinking it all day, you know, at work, not a problem, but, but I was drinking and driving, drinking in the morning and driving, drinking in the evening and driving. And I realized, I, just, I don't know, I had some, some rational thoughts there, and I was like, Jesus Christ, you're putting so many people at risk. And something that we always tell ourselves, I think, as operators is, I'm never going to do anything to willingly put my team, the people I love about, in a bad situation, to put them unwittingly or knowingly at risk, especially because of a poor decision that, that I made. And I realized at that point I wasn't, um, I wasn't, for whatever reason, I didn't know why, but I couldn't be counted on in one of those situations because I, I didn't know how I would react. Am I going to have a, pan, you know, one of these panic attacks that I'm out of control, I, I can't do anything about it? Am I going to be making poor decisions all of a sudden because I can't put two and two together? You know, and, and so that's when I raised my hand and I was like, listen, I need some help. Here's what's going on. I, I don't know why. I don't want it to be there. Like, let's fix it. And then let me get back to work. And that's what I kind of jumped into the, the, the military, our military medical system. And that was just a whole nother train wreck, man. But, you know, I'll stop right there, Hugh, and see if we want to uh, uh, ask any questions to go any deeper or keep, just keep moving. So, question for you. Why... We notice these things early on. When I I'm, when I say we, there are, as you well know now, you know, there are people who listen to you, and there are people who listen to this, and they are going, and they're like I do, listen to you, sitting, they'll be sitting there, they'll be nodding their heads, nodding their heads, nodding their heads, because there'll yeah. be some or all of what you're talking about, and they have been there, they've touched that that experience, right? Here's a question: we, Why don't we 
Well, why didn't you, when you started noticing those issues, you, you know, straight away with um, uh, the sort of the unusual behaviour, the libido, and the other things you mentioned? Why, why didn't you go and, and see a doc straight away? I think it's a good why question. Does it ha- why does it I have think... to get to the? Why does it have to get to be catastrophic until we seek it out? Yeah, for me. Um, which is the only viewpoint I can speak from, it was that uh, I was the epitome, at least I thought, of a healthy, fit individual, um, physically, mentally, you know, every domain. So when something hits you, you're just like, I'll I'll just brush it off. Because that's probably what, that's what I've done my entire life. Uh, I'm betting most of the people who listen to this who are in similar in similar situations probably uh, have the same feeling. So I just flip this away, man. No big deal. Boom. And then it doesn't it doesn't go away. Um, that's odd. You know, that's that's weird. Uh, okay, I'm just gonna keep trying because my personality is like I see the instinct. I know where I'm going. This is the road. Reach it, or I'm gonna bypass it. But it's get out. That 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 was my mentality. And then I don't, you know, I don't think anybody, nobody would have. If I had a and said, hey, I need to see somebody. Nobody, and I mean nobody in my unit would have said like, oh, that guy's weak. Uh, I'd earned the place at the table at that point. But that being said, there is that mentality that you don't want to show any weakness um, whatsoever. Uh, good, bad, or indifferent, that's just the way it is, man. Like, uh, I don't acknowledge, you know, and I think that's because we don't do our best to not acknowledge pain. We know it's there, but we just have a good way of just pushing through it, at least physically, and you know, in training in, in these combat situations. So that's another one, I think, that um, it's just like, and then you think, you know, probably nobody else in the history of the world has ever dealt with this. I'm probably, it's probably just unique to me. <laughs> and so I, I don't, I, nobody, there's nobody that I can talk to about it. So I'll just, I'll just keep it to myself because, you know, like on the, on the ODA, like everybody else has got their own problems. They all have a family and everything else. We're doing with all the stuff we deal with at work. And then like, they need to hear about my problems, which they would have, uh, but I just didn't put them on it. So, you know, I think you, it's, it's just the, the whole mindset and, um, and then the stigma around that. And then later on, man, when you think there really is a problem, you know, you're worried about security clearance. You're, you're worried about career. You're worried about kind of those long-term things. But on the front end, that, that didn't really enter my mind, you know. And, and, and yes, I think so, it's so important to have these conversations too because that's kind of what I, I want to point out is, like, we can take steps to mitigate the train from ever having to come off the tracks, like it did with with myself and with so many others, uh, many of which are no longer here. Um, the kind of is uh, the force that continues to for us to keep pushing and, and, and put this information out and have these conversations is is to start a new conversation, to start a new uh, a new level of awareness about what we can do, you know, to prevent these things from happening, or what are some steps that we can take at the earliest sign signs of them. But I don't know, man, what, what's your take on it from, from, from your experience? Why don't guys jump in there quicker? 
the stigma is one. The stigma is the one obvious one. I think the other one is a lack of lack of um, lack of understanding, lack of knowledge. The way I the way I sort of think about it myself, in like I know now, I am I I see now a if I was to put it into like a graphical representation, there is a ladder at the bottom. Of the ladder is the bottom of a pit. Uh, well, the bottom of the ladder is that you've got to hang off the bottom of the ladder and drop 10 foot into a pit. When you're in the bottom of the pit, it's very hard to reach the ladder, right? And we're all at the top of the ladder. Baseline, healthy baseline is the top of the ladder. Every person is. Military or not, flipping woman or man, or whatever gender you want to call yourself, anything. We're all at, at some stage, at some point in the ladder. Most of us are high up the ladder, okay? For the majority of people, they don't know what the, what the steps, the lower steps even look like. They don't know what the lower steps even look like. And the way I, I feel about myself now, I, I, I am now really, I, I'm, I'm just much more aware of when I drop down a rung. I'm just really sensitive to it. Only because I'm, I'm more aware of um, what causes my mental state to drop down a level. It could be anything. I could be tired. I could have had a beer yesterday. I could have had an argument with someone, or it could be the opposite. I did something positive today. I felt really good. There's a, I won the lottery, or you know, my missus told me she loved me, or my kids told me they loved me, and I, I'm elevated, right? So now it's a case of I, when I drop down a rung, I'm much more aware of it, and also I know what's at the bottom of the ladder. I know how hard it is to get back up. So when I drop down, I, I'm just more conscious of it, and I can step back up because I've been and I've seen it and also because I, I'm very lucky I have the privilege of speaking to people like you and um, other people of a similar background or not of a similar background but of similar experiences okay and I just I just uh, I just I'm just more conscious of it as you are you know you, I, I, I'm guessing it's the same for you 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 know when you drop down a couple of rungs and and I think I, I now really think okay I need to get on top of this now Otherwise, I'm going to face two, three weeks or months of bad habits or drinking or lack of exercise. And then guess what will happen then? My mental state will plummet. Because the way I see it is, and again, from personal experience over the last few years, is the first couple of rungs to drop down, they take time to drop down. But the lower down ladder you get, the faster the descent is. And you are rapidly sliding down it until you just it's just free fall, man. And the... The faster you're falling, the harder it is to get a grip on a rung and, and slow it down, let alone start climbing back up. And then when you get all the way to the bottom, there's no, you don't even see the ladder anymore. There is no ladder. There's only one way out. And you, that's it. you stay in the darkness the whole time. And the only way to be shown the opposite of it is for the, your environment to change, your situation to change, or you to be exposed to information you're otherwise unaware of. And the only, the only way you get that especially for the military background, is you get it from people you resonate with. Because in that state of mind, you ain't going to sit there and, and read a book about fucking mindfulness. You ain't going to sit there and, and see a post on Instagram about, oh, it's okay for men to talk. Well, you're not going to do that. It's going to be your buddies <clears throat> who have an understanding of it, who are going to communicate that information to you. And it, and, and it takes, and for me, it took multiple multiple times with that repeated message to me from people, repeated repeated, you know, encouragement from the people I love and trust. Age, a long time, and then it clicked once. And then all of a sudden, I didn't see the way out, but I've been told it was, and so I started to climb back up. And uh, this is the problem with it. Um, one is the stigma, and two is the lack of understanding, a lack of knowledge around 
your, your knowledge of yourself and an emotional state, but also why it's happening, why it's happening, which is a key one here, Andrew. And it's a key one that when I first broached on this subject of uh, your neurophysiology and um, neuroendocrinology and psychology mm-hmm. versus uh, physiology versus psychiatry. Oh, not versus, this is the wrong word, but how are they going hand in hand? I first mentioned it, Mr. Mandy Bostwick. It was like a light bulb coming on, a, mm-hmm. being, a switch being flicked to me. And just in terms of understanding, not, oh, here is the miracle cure, but I understand this a lot better now, a lot better. And it's the same for other people who have um, listened to or watched people like yourself, people like Mark Gordon, people like Mandy Bostick over here. You know, it's, a, it's, an, it's an understanding. You're getting knowledge and you understand the situation better. When you understand the situation better in an area that seems very, 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 um, what's the word? Uh, a, a difficult to understand, a, a, a spaghetti junction of, uh, and a web of uh, uh, causes and effect, which is the mind. It's the more information you get, you understand it better. Then the, the the more likely people are to be able to stop themselves sliding down the ladder, you know. And which is why I'm grateful for your time today. Um, why was the why was the military medical side? Why did that? Why was that a train wreck for you? Yeah. Uh, before that, man, like uh, what a great analogy with the ladder. Uh, I, that really resonated with me. And I think what the importance is, like the question I asked myself was, if anybody would have brought this information to me when I was a healthy individual, uh, operating, you know, a uh, team guy, would I, uh, would, would I have received it? Would it have gotten through? And I think if I just heard it once, you know, probably not. But if I continued to hear it from people who I respected, or people had, that had earned the respects of our community, people that had been in those type of, of situations and predicaments. If, I, if that was just the way that we talked, then that just becomes the way we do business. And that's my hope for what we're doing here is that strong, hardcore individuals can talk about their experience, talk about salute, identify problems for the sole intent to identify and bring solutions and new solutions to help change the way that we do business in a, the most positive of, of directions. So I think that again, like I was listening to you talk, man, about the ladder analogy and, and the new information or knowledge. And that's what, that's what we're doing because when I was, and I'll go into the medical questionnaire in a, in a second, but when I was sinking in all of this, the information that we've been able to bring to the forefront uh, since 2015, it wasn't there, man. Like we had, to, I had to figure out how to, how to put all this stuff together. There wasn't any any link. And so, segueing into like, hey, why why do I have a problem with the military medical model? Is well, I mean, I raised my hand. I have a problem, and and oh, and by the way, like my memory is gone. Uh, I can't words that I need to communicate and articulate. Not fancy words, not compounded words. I'm talking about every day, like when I go get used the word pen, the word's not there. Words with uh, just my regular vocabulary with my job responsibilities. And so now I can't even recall and pull regular words. I can't remember things in sequence. I can't, anything new, forget about it. Focus, gone. So, you know, there's all these other areas and started having a lot of physiological problems too. 
So uh, headaches into migraines that led into blurry vision, that led into double vision, then now I can't even walk in a straight line. That, 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 was, that was the new daily occurrence. And, and, so, and then I'm just psychologically a, com a complete wreck and I can't sleep. So what did the system do very well intended? Well, first my unit, all they wanted to do was help. They were like, listen, this is, we don't have the specialties here that you need. So I got farmed out to all these different specialty um, uh, physicians, like six, six or seven different specialists. And everybody was only looking at it from a very narrow viewpoint of like, here's the entire you, or here's the pie. My specialty is a sliver right here. And my sliver says that everything that you're dealing with, it's not in here. So go to the guy down the hall. He's got this section. And I go down to the hall, but it would take three weeks to get to the guy down the hall. I see the guy down the hall. Then it'd take three weeks for him to get back to me of what his assessment was, and it was the same thing. So now I started becoming infuriated because I'm going through this stupid system that does nothing to look at the holistic picture. None of these doctors are talking to one another. The only thing that seems to be constant is they're like, yeah, I don't know. You're dealing with all these symptoms. Here's uh, medications that will help them to uh, quell some of these symptoms, but it won't do anything to fix the problem. And it, it going around the wheel there. And so what, it, what that ended with was me being all over the country, went to the care for head injuries and traumatic brain injuries that our Department of Defense had, everything. That left me being on 13 medications, uh, being forced to be medically retired from the Army. They labeled me with over 30 you know, disabilities, like neurocognitive, like all these psychological disorders. And my major complaint was that I don't have any history of any of these psychological issues. I'll own the physical stuff, wear and tear, of course. But here was my question. And I started to look into neuroendocrinology and put two and two together. Because like, just intuitively, I was like, man, we've been around a lot of blasts. Like, that has to have some effect. <laughs> and I was like, and so I started asking individuals questions. I'm like, hey, is there any correlation to what I'm experiencing being a consequence of being around all these low-level blasts over the last 10 years. And everybody's like, no, 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 no. If you're still experiencing post-concussive or TBI symptoms six months after a head injury, well, that's not from a head injury. That's from psychological distress. And I had one psychologist tell me that, hey, Andrew, you know, you've been very good at compartmentalizing and you've been on so many missions and you just file that stuff away in a file cabinet in your mind. But there's so many that when you go to close that, it can't close anymore. And the files are just spilling out. And that's what you're experiencing psychologically. And I was like, well, is that just your, like, your opinion? <laughs> like, can you, can you like, use any type of measurement or an objective test to support that? Because I say that's not the case. Um, and I think it's something else, but I didn't know what that something else was. So that, that was, that's the, that's the military medical model is it completely, um, completely ignores the presence of any physiological consequences that affect the processing, the neurochemical processing of the brain, 
which, how does that manifest when that is affected? It manifests as depression. It manifests as anxiety. It manifests as in issues with cognition. It manifests in anger and rage and inability to properly relate in social um, circumstances, to have good interpersonal skills, even though that's never been a problem. And when you start to understand that we can identify all those things in very real terms using objective measurements rather than some asshole's opinion that then puts you on a number of psychotropic drugs that has disastrous side effects for a large portion of the population, me included, well, that is the problem that I have with the way the business is done right now. But yet I'm just crying about it or saying, oh, worries me, what, this, that, and the other. No, let's talk about what we can do can we improve the situation and that that's that's the encouraging part about all of this have you been facing two seconds mike have you been facing uh when you experienced talking over here when you came over last last year or was it 2019 with uh, mark when you uh, you briefed the, we were there the, january we were there one year ago yeah we were there uh, one year ago january of 2020 yeah so the UK is like we're years behind where where the US seems to be at the moment with this military. But it was it a similar experience to what you'd experienced over in the states in terms of the receipt of the information. Oh man! Um, so I mean, we we uh, I touched on that. We touched on this a little bit on our last Rogan interview. It was hostile. Talking about we were coming to hostile territory. I heard it. So. Yeah. Uh, I, I'm trying to remember, um, I don't remember the name of the paper, um, but it was written by, and I'm not even going to give the guy credit, uh, but it was some of the prominent people that are in the NHS system in psychiatry, psychology, and so-called people who have expertise in dealing with traumatic brain injury. Their assessment uh, that they did in the study was they looked at like 81 guys in, in, the, in the UK, military members, combat guys who were suffering from you know, psychological issues, what they call psychological duress. And it also showed, I think, a high majority of them had head injuries, right? And the, the analysis of their study, which is what I guess is the way that the UK looks to look at um, minor traumatic brain injuries, is that, listen, um, we can't verify that these individuals had a head injury, even though they said that they did. But we find that the reason that they're having all these psychological issues that we know are a consequence or potentially an overlap from having a head injury, it's not due to a head injury. It's not due to a physiological injury. It's due because they have psychological duress from their combat experience. And they're unwilling to look at, accept, receive, or investigate any information, no matter how scientifically valid, sound, logical, uh, researched, or applied clinically, that differs that body of work. And when you jump into that, it's really more about like, I get this much of money, money every year to do this type of research, and now there's a competing interest in here, and I have the monopoly on this, which I think is just really enforced not only as a money mechanism but to keep strong individuals down there's no other there's no other i've looked at it for five years now i didn't have this conclusion when i first jumped in the game but now i'm confident these things are in place to keep people down 
And that's what's going on. So that was the case there in the UK. They did not receive that information well. They attacked Mark. They attacked the science. And we had the, I mean, we had the top people in the NHS. We had the top people from experts from the US um, as well, who are um, very open to science. Um, not saying that America is like, they, we have our own fucking problems as well. Um, but, but that was the issue there, man. So for whatever reason, like, and the good thing was, is that um, Air Marshal Reed was open to it. He's like, okay, well, like, why don't we run a test? Like, let's, let's, do a, let's do a project and we'll let the results, we'll see what the results are. And then we'll go from there. And then that got, you know, that got squashed. So that was kind of the, my, our UK trip. It was funny because we thought that like we had defeated the system and we were going to come in and, and have this, you know, uh, alternative to the conventional means. And we were going to actually going to get, get, get to test it on, out on the battlefield and have it prove its merits, which we were completely confident in. And then, you know, so like that night, man, we celebrated like it was 1999 and then that, you know, COVID hit and then, uh, roundabout way you know that got usurped as well yeah the he, uh, i think the guy on board was the surgeon general who you mentioned right uh, yeah but uh yeah you're right mate it's from my i say you're right what would i know i'm playing line with you after speaking with mandy and speaking with andrew uh, with mark and speaking to yourself and i saw the report as well um i speak to some other people yeah it's, that's what it's the case of it's uh um, my understanding is Imperial College have the monopoly on psychiatric research, which influences psychiatric treatment within the military and psych, you know, that aspect of it. Um, and they, uh, because they, they contracted to the defense medical, uh, school, DMS. Um, and it's, it, I mean, you know, whether you talk about money or power on a, on a, on a broad level, it compromises their influence in that field right at the very at the very minimum but i um i don't know if mark's mentioned to you i sent the link but um things things are moving in a positive way over here i think Re slowly mind really flipping slowly um but mandy and professor gary green who i believe is at that briefing mm -hmm. with you that yeah they yeah. were in they gave a briefing to something over here called the defense select committee over here which is to do with defense all matters defense right they give a briefing and held a discussion with defense select committee or oh, a couple of weeks ago um only now alone i'll send you a link after this actually really really well uh, he, he sent it to me yeah i got it i, I watched a little bit yesterday oh there you go cool and i got told yesterday from um, a lady called kate england uh, whose husband is uh, who suffers from uh complex ptsd real you know uh, just really struggles it's a, he's a he's a he's a really nice guy and uh she's been battling forward trying to get appropriate treatment for him and just appropriate treatment and for every you know for everyone really who needs it and she sent me a uh a message day before yesterday they're going to be mandy and gary will be back in professor gary i should say will be back in with parliament on the 26th it'll be the same link it'll be the same link but keep an eye out for that but does that is that similar to what uh, that experience uh, when you came over early last year? Is, is it is it a similar experience that you, that you or Mark or anyone has had in the U.S. with trying to get this um, research and treatment listened to and or not? Is it being how is it being received over there? How much headway are you make in with this? Mm -hmm. I would say in the in the special operations community. It's not a secret anymore, and it's well received. 
And it's funny, man, because I, you know, I was an enlisted guy, senior enlisted guy, and I get out, and we we're doing our work, and and so when I we go and talk and to to these different units, we're talking to the the group commander or the you know the second in charge and this that and the other, and it's funny because we think when we're in, like they have just all this power and all this influence influence to to bring about change or to usher in something different. And it just became blatantly obvious after about, you know, two conversations in. I was like, oh, man, this guy doesn't make decisions. Like, he's just like everything else. Somebody's dictated a certain, a certain you know, decision set with him, and he has a little bit of freedom and autonomy to move in there. But outside of that, like, he just can't go and change how the system is run. Um, and so what I mean is, like, yeah, we have a back-to-backing of a lot of uh, people in high levels of leadership. But the people that actually make the decisions higher up, not not so much. That hasn't been been, been met there. And I think, um, again, man, like I don't deal in conspiracy theory, but I deal in conspiracy fact. And the fact of the matter is, is that in the U.S. we have lobbyists, you know, that um, uh, special interests that lobby against government to have, you know, these interests brought brought into fruition from a free market, a so-called free market perspective. So the point I'm making here is there's, I think, with the pharmaceutical company has something like 1,400 lobbyists. We only have 535 members of representative government in the U.S. So we're talking three to one ratio. So there's no incentive for there to be a change or an alteration in a model that takes somebody off of a medication that otherwise they were told they were going to be on for the rest of their lives. See, that's a direct attack on their business model. See, what we're saying is that majority of that can be done without a pharmacological means and using something much better received to the body that's natural. And because of that, like these things aren't are necessary for everybody. I'll say that. Well, that's a tremendous, tremendous potential attack. That's why these things, the volume on them don't does not get turned up. That's why you're like you think like. 20 years later, we have all these people suffering. We're, talk, we're not talking about radical things here. We're talking about things that's been well-researched, well applied clinical, natural, validated. The reason it doesn't get the noise, the, the volume that it needs is, is you have to question that. It's because there's an angle to it. They don't want that information getting out. They'd rather have people, uh, with rather factory farm out humans than get them up right thinking clearly, able to make good decisions with their eyes open because maybe then we wouldn't have such a compliant society for all this nonsense that we see going on. So that's just my own two cents of being in the last five years, but I think that's the resistance there. The resistance, is, the resistance that we find is not because it's not a logical model, it's not a scientific model, because when you do, we've done the cost analysis, it makes complete sense from a so-called policymaker decision so there has to be something else to it. Um, and then you can go a little, look a little bit deeper and follow the money. It's easy to make that conclusion. Like there's no incentive for somebody else to just do the right thing. And I'm not even saying like make this primary. This, we need alternatives. We need free choice. We need to be able to make choices. And we should have freedom over our own health. We should have that. And I'm saying right now you have to really fight for that to happen and have to really look – hard to find information to go and make that a reality. So that's where the resistance comes from, man. That, 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 you know, the world according to Andrew.
how is uh, so talking about Angel Warrior Foundation? What how, how does that work for this cause then? What's it what's it about, Mike? Yeah, uh, it's it's Warrior Angels Foundation. Oh, sorry, and, uh, I do apologize. Oh, it's all good. It's all good. Um, it, it it came about, man. Like when I was going through all this before I met Mark, um, my my oldest boy was 13 months at the time. And he had a life-threatening illness, had to go through a number of um, you know, significant surgeries. And he had just had this uh, massive growth removed out of his neck. So I'm there with him in the ICU, and he's recovering. And I had this moment of clarity as I, I looked down. And at that point, you know, I realized that in my current condition, I was of no value to him or my family. And uh, that, that was going to kill me. But, but worse than that, I just realized, like, they're going to grow up either with somebody that shouldn't be around or they're not going to grow up, uh, you know, uh, with me. Either way, it's going to be bad. So I made a promise to my boy and myself three things. One, I would return to the man of my pre-injury status. Two, I would find a way to come off all that medication. And after those two things were accomplished, I was going to turn around. I was going to help other people do the exact same thing. And that was kind of the, the fire, that the, the ignition that, that got me moving in a different direction. I started to have, I started to ask myself different questions and I started to envision a different future than the current timeline that I was in. And that put me on that track. So when I was able to meet Mark, I was able to receive his protocol. I was able to perform as I am today, as good if not better than my pre-injury status, completely free of all medication and symptoms, which is not special or significant to me because we've helped to produce it over 400 times now, uh, close to 520 times now, is, is that, okay, let's start an organization where we can help individuals just like myself and families who were uh, crumbling just like mine was get the same access to the same level of care that I received. So my brother and I started that in 2015 with not any idea other than that. And then now it's just kind of morphed and evolved into this uh, finely tuned uh, machine that's kind of hitting on three different cylinders. One is like we provide and we put out like really good information. So we've done that with books, uh, movies, podcasts, blogs, you know, all that. We just put out information because... Before, like I said, it wasn't really understood, you know, what can cause the brain to become inflamed and how that infl inflammation can lead to these downstream effects that just can derail somebody. And if you don't identify, treat that correctly, it's never going to improve itself. So that was one aspect of it. Like, okay, there's the information aspect of it. There's the treatment aspect of it. And that's probably, um, unfortunately, like this, the smallest footprint because, um, you know, we have to raise our money to be able to support the people that we support there. So that's why, you know, it's not a wide ranging type of deal, but we've supported now 520 individuals since uh, 2015. The third aspect of it is the research. Um, we've been pushing out with the help of uh, our, our, in partnership with Mark Gordon, his Millennium Health Centers, the results of our clinical work. And so now we've made just groundbreaking contributions to the fields of trauma and traumatic brain injury care. So those are kind of the three avenues with which the foundation is, is uh, solidly supporting. And we're looking into the future now that we've done so. We've proven out the model. Um, I don't 
don't care what any officer says or feels about it, because I know, I know the facts, I know the history, I know the results, we have it all very well done, and now we're going to go the same thing, and we'll apply that to the homeless population, and we'll do uh, apply it to the incarcerated population, because we think we can show um, benefit to those populations as well. So that's kind of the, the genesis of the foundation and, and the, the high-level overview and where we're all looking to go for the future. Sorry, so when you say um, the homeless population and incarcerated, do you mean in general or military-specific? Uh, I would mean in general, but we, we might. Uh, I'm not. It's, it's to be determined. Uh, right now, it's a broad-based initiative that, that me and Dr. Gordon both feel strongly about uh, with the veteran population. But like, here, here's what we know. Um, we know that in, in the U.S., but I, I would uh, assume it was the same for the U.K., Europe, you know, most uh, industrialized nations, is that homeless, up to half of them, uh, half of the homeless population has a documented head injury somewhere in their timeline. And when you get into the incarcerated realm, we're talking about 7 out of 10 um, have a documented head injury. And here's the thing. Most head injuries are not documented because it's the it's the repetitive, cumulative effects over time that can really take its toll. And that's, that's what goes, goes on with, with kind of our population. Sure, they see it, they have a big blast. But that was my case. It was just these repetitive, sub-concussive, cumulus blasts over time. Each one dwindles away our resiliency to the point where the last pin kind of breaks the camel's back there type of thing. So that's the case. So that's why we want to continue uh, to expand kind of our work and our reach to those populations. I think we would like to do it with the, with the veteran population, but I'm not, we're not narrowed to that. Yeah. And, and the reason I ask is we've had this conversation today and it's very military centric. And we talk about, you know, we're talking about things like blast and, um, and also in the sports side with, you know, physical knocks to the head. But as, as one of the things that is articulated very well by the Quiet Explosions documentary that he did, is that it's not just about physical uh, 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 traumatic brain injuries caused by physical things. Your traumatic brain injuries can be caused by emotional experiences. The lady, I forget her name, which I think she was Navy, yeah. who was a rape victim. Annie, who was a rape victim, right? And experiencing yeah. experiencing many of the same symptoms that you did, that other people experienced from blast or impact. I mean, that, and that was that was one of the eye openers on that as well. And I, I sort of understood that part already, but that was when I, it, I really understood that. Holy shit! Okay, and and again, going back, that's why I asked about the homeless and the, the incarcerated is because I, I see people like you um, in the military community with, with this stuff. I just, I see you as kind of the, you're the, you're the flag carriers, right? For this knowledge at the moment, we're, we're trying to spread it for the benefit of the military community. But that knowledge, as you well know, this is wide ranging positive impact for society because your traumatic brain injuries and, and the symptoms of can be really, really mild, really, 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 you know, small to really, really severe. And again, though, those traumatic brain injuries can be caused by anything. You don't have to be a fucking soldier or spec ops guy or a, or a you know, a Marine or anything and go and get blown up or, or you don't have to be a boxer or an American football athlete or an MMA fighter. This is, these are symptoms that are caused by a wide variety of things, causes issues in the brain, and, it, and this is a, a very, very effective way of treating it, but also prevention. 
which is another way of, you know, a, a way of preventing a, a treatment that is preventative to the impacts of it. You know, you can't stop knocks in the head. You can't stop the extreme emotional experience that you're going to do, but you can help prevent the impacts of it. Mate, it's been an absolute pleasure talking to you. Really, really has. Um, have we, is there anything you want to cover that we haven't covered? Uh, no, I'm pretty much an open book, man. I just, no agenda here other than to have a good conversation. I really enjoyed uh, our talk, you. Um, be honored to come back on again and jump into any category or domain. Um, I think the, the audience will find this useful. Hey, there's more information on our, on our website, um, uh, WAF. TBI.org. Mark Gordon's got a great website. Um, I'm sure he went put it out in the last episode, but it's TBIHelpNow.org. Between those two, man, there's just cutting edge information uh, on both sites that breaks things down into ways that is easily understandable. And that's another thing about Quiet Explosions is uh, that our director, Jerry Shear, just did a phenomenal job of breaking down these advanced neurological concepts with some of the most uh, well-respected people in their field down to ways that like anybody can understand it. And that's how we got to communicate. We've got to communicate with ways that people can receive it and understand the information uh, in powerful different mediums. So if you want, if you want more information, man, it's all, it's all there. Uh, but, but that would probably be it. You are just grateful for the opportunity to come on and talk. Oh, mate, cheers for your time. And when you go to the UK, um, or if I come yeah. there, we'll do something in person. Listen, stay safe, keep doing what you're doing, and um, good luck. Thanks, you. Appreciate it, brother. Have a great night. <laughs> cheers, mate. Thank you for listening to the podcast. Become a patron of the podcast by going to patreon.com forward slash HK podcasts. Uh, and yeah, leave me a review, please, if you can. We're also on YouTube, so you can uh, you can watch the, you, you can, if you prefer to watch, I suppose, listen, just watch it on YouTube. Um, yeah, search for HR podcast and subscribe. That's it. Another shout to the sponsors, Veteran Trees. Dan is an ex-military. He runs Veteran Trees and Veteran Trees create bespoke handcrafted or, or CNC crafted uh, wooden pieces. For, for example, custom whole custom bespoke tables that big or custom plaques or right down to coasters like I've got in the studio. Uh, find Dan on or find Veteran Trees on Instagram at Veteran underscore Trees and you can email Dan actually and his email address is VeteranTrees at Outlook.com. Email him. If you've got an idea, gift for someone else. That's a gift for yourself. Email Dan at Veteran Trees, VeteranTreesOutlook.com. Thank you. Also, Aardvark Group, headed up by Davidson John Clare, trying to rid the world of unexploded ordnance and uh, legacy landmines in post-conflict areas since 1982, and have been supporting the military, the military community since then as well, and obviously sponsoring the podcast. Aardvark.group to find out more about Aardvark Group, or social media, the Aardvark Group, Instagram, Twitter, LinkedIn, and Facebook. And last but not least, Rugby for Heroes, who have been raising money for military charities since 2009. They've raised over £110,000 by organising fun events, rugby-oriented events, beer-drinking events, and uh, of late, uh, exquisite meal-eating events, supper clubs. So they've got stuff planned for 2021. Even with the COVID situation going on, they've got some innovative ideas in their back pocket that they're trying to push forward with planning. 
rugby number four heroes on social media so it's at rugby number four heroes and their website is rugbyforheroes.org thank you mike valance everybody at r4h thank you for listening to the podcast remember to leave me a review if you can please on apple podcasts or whatever you listen to it on if it has a review capability and until next time out <laughs>